Democracy, not now or ever. This is hell and more than ever the lack of democracy in not only the U.S., but throughout Europe and the so-called Western democracies is being revealed. And we can thank WikiLeaks and Julian Assange for many of those revelations. But revealing such secrets is a direct challenge to what our guest today calls the secret power of the secret state, the state controlled by the military, industrial, and intelligence complexes, as well as many other powerful economic interests. Therefore, any state secrets of crime and corruption are seen as direct challenges to the power of those interests. The state has reacted by persecuting Assange, a a persecution that our guest today calls torture, all for revealing the truth about, among other things, war crimes, torture, and global surveillance systems. For revealing the brutality and cruelty of the state, Assange has been met with, you guessed it, brutality and cruelty from the state. So you'd think the press would come rush to his defense with complete support. After all, he is supplying them with all sorts of information that can lead to award-winning reporting. But think again. Despite the state's direct challenge to a free press in the case of Julian Assange, The press is nowhere to be found in supporting WikiLeaks. In a few minutes, we will have the return of investigative journalist Stefania Morizzi, author of Secret Power, WikiLeaks, and Its Enemies. Stefania is an investigative uh, reporter for the daily Il Fatto Quotidiano. She works, uh, as I was saying, for Il Fatto Quotidiano and previously reported for La Repubblica and L'Espresso. She began working with Julian Assange in WikiLeaks in 2009 for her newspaper. Among international journalists, Stefania is the only one who has worked on the entirety of the WikiLeaks secret documents and the only one who has conducted a multi-jurisdictional litigation to defend the right of the press to access the full documentation on the WikiLeaks case. Stefania was on our show six years ago yesterday to discuss an interview she had done with Julian Assange for La Republica, as well as an article in The Guardian that she believed was a distortion of Julian Assange and his work at WikiLeaks. You can find that interview at thisishell.com when searching on Assange or searching on Stefania's last name, Maurizi, M-A-U-R-I-Z-I. Find out more about Stefania at stefaniamorizi.it. Follow Stefania on Twitter at S. Morizzi. Stefania's book includes a foreword by Ken Loach, arguably the most successful director in the history of the prestigious Cannes Film Festival, including winning the Palme d'Or, the festival's top prize, twice for The Wind That Shakes the Barley in 2006 and I, Daniel Blake in 2016. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gaptooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Lindsay Gorey. I know we just saw each other recently, but is there anything new by you that may have happened over the weekend or even just in the last 24 hours? Mm, well, I suppose I've, I, I 
made cat food for my cats for the first time, and so now I'm just trying to make sure I'm not like going to poison them with it. <laughs> so we're watching them. Why? Why would that lead to poisoning them? <laughs> you know, I was just. So I, I gave them a chicken liver. I had this chicken, and I gave them a chicken litter, liver, and livers have a lot of vitamin A in them. Right. And so, you know, if they get too much vitamin A, that can be toxic, so I just had to do some research on how much is too much. Uh, and also, like, if you cook with garlic or onions, cats and dogs aren't supposed to have those, so I had to also calculate to make sure it wasn't too much for my cats that I because I was just giving them leftovers right so but I don't think I'm gonna kill them I'll let <laughs> <Yeah>. you know <laughs> they will tell me give me a heads up if you did or not <laughs> I know that vitamin A can be dangerous because in and now I'm forgetting the person's name and the name of the ship but uh, in a uh, exploration of the Antarctic uh, they these their ship was stranded somewhere in the Antarctic they had a marched for hundreds of miles and in the process they were eating seals and they were eating the seals livers and the livers contained a toxic level of vitamin a in it so i've heard about that before so do you know how to make your own laundry detergent i do well i like i guess it's not making my own but there are lots and lots of plants that have saponins in them which can be used as detergent so english ivy is actually one that's just everywhere it's an invasive plant that's just everywhere there's a lot of saponins in those leaves so you can like make it just make a tea out of it and you can use it as laundry detergent and there's another plant in chicago called horse chestnut that's it's toxic for humans to eat you have to fight the squirrels for them, though, because they can eat them. <laughs> those have a lot of sabinins, but those are harder to use. Some people use those because they're similar to these uh, things called soap nuts, which are native to India. And so if you buy soap nuts, they're coming from probably really far away versus horse chestnuts you can find in Chicago. But I don't know. I think English ivy is probably easier. The best part of foraging is definitely the squirrel fights. So uh, the way that I know we know how to make a, a detergent is by like using stuff like borax, and I mean it's just a way to make cheap laundry detergent. But that's one of the things that I've never really understood how the high expense for laundry detergent and how it's easily something that can be replaced and substituted. Usually, our first guest interview and all the interstitial stuff around it are produced by Sebastian Vupper. Our second guest is produced by the person who's producing right now, Lindsay Gorey. And the third guest each week is produced by Dan Hill with our Patreon podcast on Thursday, again, produced by Sebastian. But with Sebastian preparing to move across Lake Michigan to Grand Rapids, Sebastian was unable to produce our first guest interview this week. So we get a double dose of Lindsay. By the way, the Grand Rapids City slogan is Strength and Activity which kind of has this Garibles-esque ring to it, which is not that surprising for Grand Rapids. And last year at this time, producer Alexander Jerry had planned to move on from the show. However, he valiantly stayed on, and with Seb, Lindsay, Dan, and Richard, they kept the show going as I had to miss nearly three months of shows due to health concerns last year. So it looks like we will be losing two very valuable producers in the next few, maybe several weeks, which is all to say, in the very near future, we may have new openings 
on the show for jobs, for positions here at This Is Hell. And we'll tell you more about that later this week. But for now, if you are interested in joining the crew here on This Is Hell, keeping in mind we do Fight for 15, if you know what I mean, send me an email to chuck at thisishell.com and tell us how you believe you can contribute to This Is Hell. We are looking for people who can actually physically be here to run the board and produce a 10 a.m. show once a week, either on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday. A shift basically runs two and a half to three hours, beginning around 9.30 in the morning here at our studio in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood at 2251 West Devon Avenue on the second floor above Carrie's Lounge. We are also looking for people who can do remote work as well, from working on our website to sound editing. If you are interested, email us at chuck at thisishell.com. Lindsay, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what have you repeatedly failed to do but keep trying to achieve anyway? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century uh, flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can direct message it to us via Twitter. You can email it to us. But as always, we will be announcing this week's winner at the end of this week's show following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. During this week's moment, Jeff influences the influencers. We got a message via Facebook about last week's world broadcast premiere of This Is Hell, which happens every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Central on Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM, our home radio station. Marguerite writes, really liked meeting Penny Rimbaud via your interview with him. Played on Saturday, January 7th. I guess it was a replay. Never heard of him before your show. You have so many interesting guests that are firsts for me. Thank you for the kind note, Marguerite. We truly appreciate your appreciation of our interview with Penny Rimbaud. Despite being a bit confused as we were not supposed to be playing our 2001 interview with the great Penny Rimbaud, who co-founded the seminal 1970s UK anarchist band, Crass. What you were supposed to be hearing was our final three episodes of the Best of This Is Hell 2022 edition, featuring interviews with C.D. Davidson Hires and Jeff Vandermeer, who co-wrote the Nation article, Is Florida Becoming a Failed State? Tracy Rosenthal and her new Republic article, Inside L.A.'s Homeless Industrial Complex, and journalist Robert, Roberto Lovato uh, discussing his writing, The Gentrification of Consciousness. But apparently, there was a mix-up, and the wrong interview was sent to NUR. That said, the 2001 conversation with Penny is pretty mind-blowing. But as of now, the only place you can find it is at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thisishell, as we have played it for Patreon subscribers. So thanks, Marguerite, and we are glad uh, that you enjoyed our talk with Penny, who discussed the history of punk music and what was happening with the anarchist, his anarchist community in England way back in 2001. Coming up, Stefania Marizzi returns to discuss WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. We will have this week in Rotten History. Lindsay will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from Helen. We'll tell you everything happening on tomorrow's show, including this week's final guest. Live from the United States, where we know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. This is hell. And one of the things that's really undervalued here in the United States is a free press. For close to 13 years, Julian Assange has been 
under arrest and in confinement for revealing government secrets about criminality, including war crimes, as well as corruption and state surveillance. With the help of Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning, we have learned how government agencies worked with telecom companies to spy on citizens. We learned about the killings of innocent unarmed Iraqis by the U.S. military. Just go to WikiLeaks' Wikipedia page and look at the long, long, long laundry list of scandals that have arisen due to WikiLeaks' revelations. So what is behind the persecution of Assange and WikiLeaks? Here to help us have a better understanding, we are very fortunate to have the return of Il Fatto Quotidiano investigative journalist Stefano Marizzi, author of Secret Power, WikiLeaks and Its Enemies. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Stefania. Thank you so much, Chuck, and thank you to This Is Hell. I'm very glad for your interest and happy to discuss this case, which is basically, you know, there is so much silent about this case, in, in the, especially in the US and in the UK as well. In Europe, it might be different. There is a kind of uh, large support movement, but in the US and in the UK, it's rather seriously problematic. What do you think leads to that lack of activism in the U.S. and U.K. when it comes to Julian Assange? What's What do you think is the difference between what is taking place in Europe? What causes the difference when it comes to activism? Uh, when we, we see Europe having this big activist movement around supporting Julian Assange, but in the U.S. and the U.K. we don't. Well, this is a very important question, actually. I think the, the real matter here is uh, the press coverage. There is basically very little press coverage. I can tell you that uh, basically many of my friends in the US tell me, well, people, ordinary people don't know about Julian Assange WikiLeaks. They don't really know what he has done, what he has published. And we are not speaking about uneducated people. We are not speaking about people living in the middle of nowhere in some rural place with no access to, um, you know, press coverage and so on. We are thinking, uh, we are talking about educated people and they have no uh, serious in-depth information about this case because it is barely covered. I can give you an example. When we discovered this serious espionage activities inside the embassy, we, Julian Assange, his lawyers, his doctors, the WikiLeaks journalists, and we journalists who were visiting him inside the embassy were uh, spied, were uh, seriously targeted. My phone was uh, opening too, and my um, SIM card was extracted from my phone secretly while I was talking to Julian Assange. Sanji was an I was in a different room and someone else in in um in the embassy uh, got access to my backpack, uh, got access to my devices and secretly accessed them. So we know this because there are videos, there are photos and so on. So we have evidence of this. And of course, this is a big scandal according to the, this is the kind of surveillance and the espionage activities that you expect 
in a in an authoritarian state against journalists you, you know in if you go to dictatorship or authoritarian societies you have this kind of situation with this kind of attacks and uh, surveillance of journalists but do you don't expect this in london against um, journalists working for western media from western newspapers um, against the company which allegedly did this on CIA behalf, because as far as we know, there are protected witnesses who testified that this company did it on CIA behalf. They started working for the CIA. Well, uh, there were journalists, even U.S. journalists, targeted by these activities, and they never filed a criminal complaint. They never reported on the case, and there was no press coverage with the exception of maybe one article, maybe a couple of articles in the U.S., and there is a deafening silence about this. This is uh, gives you a measure of uh, the black hole in the US and in the UK as well about uh, this case. Uh, another example, which I think is uh, really unbelievable, is that it took an Italian journalist to investigate this case and to discover that the UK authorities had put pressure on the Swedish prosecutors, had basically advised them not to go to London to question Julian Assange on the alleged rape allegations. And this basically is the reason why there was this legal and diplomatic paralysis which kept Julian Assange for nine years, <laughs> for years inside the embassy. Well, it took an Italian journalist to discover this. And I, uh, I did this suing the UK authorities. And you can, you can ask yourself why took an Italian journalist this kind of investigative work should have been done by the UK journalists. They have sources inside the Crown Prosecution Service. They have resources. Uh, see, um, very likely much more resources than an Italian journalist working for a major newspaper in Italy, but still uh, a minor newspaper compare, compared to the uh, big uh, outlets like BBC, like The Guardian, like uh, Reuters and so on. So it took an Italian journalist completely alone to do it. And this gives you a measure of how bad we we are with this case, with the most important outlet, which basically did very little to cover this case. They did absolutely nothing to investigate this case. And uh, so there is no proper press coverage. There is no proper uh, public debate on this case. You, the, the award-winning um, filmmaker Ken Loach writes in the foreword, this is a book that should make you very angry. And he's right. This book should make us all very angry. To you, what explains why a journalist imprisoned and treated with unbearable cruelty for exposing war crimes would not also anger members of the media? What does it say to you about the media when they're seemingly not angry and have not been for nearly 13 years since Assange's arrest, why is the press not angry about the case of Julian Assange? 
Well, this is also a great question, actually. This is a great question. Why they are not so angry? Why it took 12 years before the five top publications, the New York Times, the Guardian, El Pais, Le Monde, Der Spiegel, um, appeal called on the Biden administration to drop the espionage case against Julian Assange. They they had, uh, you know, they had a huge benefit from this publication. They work, we work on these documents, the Afghan war logs, uh, the Iraq war logs, the US diplomacy cables, the Guantanamo files. It was a big scoop. And we, I mean, we had, uh, an important uh, competitive advantage thanks to these documents. And yet, uh, basically, these five top uh, publications uh, waited for 12 years before speaking out. Why? Well, it's, um, it's an important question. I believe there are several factors. Uh, and um, one of the important factors is that they, the demonization campaign against Julian Assange has seriously undermined his support because he has been represented, he has been depicted from the very beginning uh, as, a, as a journalist who put in uh, lives at risk. And 13 years later, we don't have a single victim. We don't have anyone who was tortured or was put in prison or was killed or was arrested as a result of these publications of the WikiLeaks publications. And we don't, and yet Julian Assange has been characterized as a reckless publisher, as a reckless journalist who put lives at risk. Then he was demonized because of these allegations of rape. And again, we, after uh, nine years, the Swedish authorities waited for nine years before closing this investigation. And this investigation was closed without any charge, without anything. They waited and waited. They postponed the, the questioning of Julian Assange. They trapped him in these uh, nine years of arbitrary detention. It's not my opinion, Chuck, that he was arbitrarily detained. It's the opinion, the decision of the UN body in charge of establishing who he is arbitrarily detained. And when this body establishes that uh, uh, an activist, a journalist, or maybe a politician, or maybe... Uh, a writer in uh, Russia or China or Iran is arbitrarily detained. Uh, the world <laughs> take the UN body seriously. But when they said that Julian Assange was arbitrarily detained, no one cared. And uh, newspapers reported that this uh, decision by the UN authorities were not re was not really mandatory, was not uh, legally binding, and so on. So there has always been a pretext not to stay in solidarity with Julian Assange and not to speak out for Julian Assange, whether it was the lives at risk, whether it was the rape allegations, whether it was the allegations of being of having a Russian connection. Again, no evidence whatsoever that there is a, a connection between WikiLeaks and Russia, or whether it was the allegation of being 
in bed with Trump. And again, we have seen that at the end of the day, it was the Trump administration who charged Julian Assange. It was not the Obama or the Biden administration. So every time in the last 13 years, every time there was a pretext not to speak out, not to defend, not to side with Julian Assange. And as a result, the the life and freedom of Julian Assange has been destroyed. This is a matter of fact. So it seems obviously pretty cynical, the campaign against Julian Assange. You mentioned the rape allegations. You mentioned the allegations of having connections to Russia. You mentioned the allegations of having a connection to the Trump, the Trump campaign and the Trump presidency. These all seem to be targeted campaigns when it comes to those who might be liberals, who might be, you know, left-leaning centrists, uh, not uh, accusations that would necessarily annoy or bother people who are right-wing or conservative. Of course, everybody is against rape, but the idea is that if a woman comes forward and says that she has been raped, you should side with the woman or the victim in, in the rape scandal. So how much do you think this uh, the campaign uh, to demonize Julian Assange is about splitting the supporters that he might have on the left, that he might have that are liberals. Are these cynical campaigns to uh, divide the left's support for Julian Assange? Yeah. So first of all, let me tell you, you mentioned that uh, whether a woman go to the police and um, and basically <clears throat> file a complaint for rape. Actually, they w- the two women never went to the police filing a complaint for rape. They went there to ask Julian Assange to have um, a, te- a text a test for uh, sexually transmitted illnesses. So it was the Swedish police which treated um, the the woman uh, the woman. Uh, as uh, being raped. <laughs> That's very interesting. I I have dedicated many years working on this, uh, on the Swedish case, among other things. And I'm not the only one who has investigated this case. Uh, the Even the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture uh, investigated this, the Swedish case and uh, got access to part of the documentation. I got access to some important documentation only thanks to a lengthy FOI litigation, which uh, has been going on uh, since 2015, basically. So it has requested more than seven years. So we got a precise understanding of what went wrong in Sweden. And we have tried, as a, me as a journalist and the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, as a UN investigator on human rights, we tried to get explanation from the Swedish authorities, from the UK authorities, and none of us obtained an explanation. I um, absolutely recommend um, the book of uh, the UN Special Rapporteur Nils Melzer and his letter to the Swedish and UK authorities, because he uh, spelled down all 
suspicious facts, all highly anomalous facts in this Swedish investigation. And he investigated this investigation as a, the Swedish investigation on rape as a U.S. special rapporteur on torture. So uh, this demonization campaign, I believe that part is, uh, you know, the usual superficiality of the press, the usual, usual uh, superficiality of the media. They don't uh, basically you realize how wrong the international journalism got this case when you think that uh, there was just a journalist, just one, <laughs> an Italian journalist uh, who investigated this case, getting access to the documentation. When I was working, when Julian had already spent five years uh, under investigation in Sweden, and there was no progress whatsoever, this, the Swedish investigation was completely paralyzed. Uh, and it, an Italian prosecutor told me, while this case doesn't make any progress and Julian Assange has been under investigation since 2010 and there is no progress whatsoever after five years. And I replied to the Italian prosecutor, well, it, the case doesn't make any process, progress because the Swedish prosecutors don't want to go to London to question him and to decide whether to charge him or whether to drop the record rape case. And the, the Italian prosecutor told me, this is uh, highly anomalous. It doesn't work this way. I mean, we Italian prosecutors went to Brazil to question very dangerous people, mafia people. So why these uh, Swedish prosecutors cannot fly to London, question him, and to charge him if they really have evidence of rape? and to extradite him, to put him on trial in Sweden. You should discover why they don't do it. And so I, I realized at that point that no one had tried to do it. No one. No, I mean, hundreds of journalists were reporting on the case, and none of them had access to the documentation on the case. I tried to get to request it. So I started my FOI trench warfare <laughs> to to get access to this documentation because no journalists in the world that tried to do it. And this tells you a lot. They were just, I mean, reporting what the, the prosecutors were saying and what the Julian Assange defense was saying. They were not digging. None of the journalists was digging into this case, trying to not just to report what one side says and what the other side says you know this is there is a famous uh, there is a famous um, uh, adage on the on the mission of journalists if someone says that it's raining and another one says uh, you know there is the sun it's not raining it is not your uh, uh, the mission of a journalist not reporting both sides it's raining, it's not raining. It is uh, uh, opening the window, uh, the window and check what is true. And that's what no one did. So it took an Italian journalist to do this. And this provides you an evidence of how superficial, how wrong journalism in these days. Uh, so part is due to this superficiality, this... Um, a lack of serious journalistic work, 
And let me tell you, I hope my life and freedom will never ever be in the hands of journalists like this, because, you know, when your life is on angst on balance, you really want journalists who work on the case seriously, who dig in the case, who try to get evidence, try to understand what's really going on. Part of this is superficiality, and part of this, I would say, is part of a campaign, because pro probably you need a lot of resources and players to... Uh, to have such a demonization campaign. I have seen what happened in 2010 when the Pentagon accused Julian Assange immediately and WikiLeaks, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, uh, of having bloods, blood on their hands after publishing the Afghan war logs. Well, that was very obviously um, uh, a demonization campaign run by the Pentagon, trying to depict Julian Assange and WikiLeaks as reckless, as dangerous people. And uh, I expected that kind of campaign, of course, because I expected that the military authorities trying to demonize and destroy their credibility, uh, both ethically and professionally. What I didn't expect was the uncritical approach by the media repeating uh, uh, these uh, allegations of putting lives at risk without any evidence uh, whatsoever. So just repeating what the uh, war propaganda machine was telling about Julian Assange being reckless. I don't think the media did a, a, um, a good service to the truth in this case, because you don't repeat critically what the what the Pentagon says. Cl clearly, the Pentagon had an obvious interest in in depicting Julian Assange as a dangerous guy, as WikiLeaks, as a reckless uh, media organization, or even worse, as a spy organization. Let's not forget that Mike Pompeo, uh, the then head of the CIA, accused WikiLeaks of being uh, a foreign intelligence and um, and a hostile intelligence service rather than a media organization. So I expected this kind of attacks from the Pentagon, from the CIA and so on, but I didn't expect the superficial and a critical approach by the worldwide media establishment. And uh, as you were saying earlier, and as was reported in late November, the United States should end its prosecution of Julian Assange, leading media outlets from the United States and Europe that had collaborated with the WikiLeaks founder, uh, citing press freedom concerns. Editors and publishers of The Guardian, The New York Times, Le Mans, Der Spiegel, El Pais, said in an open letter, quote, the indictment against Assange sets a dangerous precedent and threatens to undermine America's First Amendment and the freedom of the press. So are, Stefania, in your opinion, do you think uh, media, uh, major media outlets around the world, are, are they turning on governments and other interests that have criminalized Assange? And does this mean we will begin to possibly start seeing more favorable reporting on Assange and WikiLeaks uh, through these media outlets? Well, I think at the they, uh, the eleventh hour, they realize that we are the next. We, the traditional journalists, uh, will be the next after Julian Assange. We will be the next. 
And if we publish the next cable gate, the next collateral murder, the next Afghan war logs will be uh, destroyed as Julian Assange has been, because he has been destroyed. So uh, probably uh, now that uh, the extradition approaches, because it's a matter of months and uh, his life will be, you know, his destiny will be finally decided will be he will be extradited or he will be uh, free uh, as the extradition approaches probably the new york times probably the guardian probably uh, el país le monde der spiegel realize that the, the day they have the next collateral murder the day they have uh, a source with who provide them the next cable gate, uh, well, they will be in a very uh, bad situation and they will face uh, charges as Julian Assange did. So uh, this probably is changing their approach now, but I, I, I wonder whether it is too late because we have seen they had 13 years to speak out and they haven't for 13 years with very few noble exception, with very few individual exception, they haven't uh, uh, spoken out, they haven't uh, uh, condemned the treatment of Julian Assange, we had, which has been horrific. Let me tell you, I have been there from the very beginning. So I have seen how he felt have been destroyed and it has been very very sad because we uh, journalists like me were reporting on his uh, uh, on the destruction of his health and nothing was happening we were denouncing his treatment we were denouncing his uh, health collapsing and nothing was happening and there was no reaction no serious uh, um, no serious reaction from the mainstream media from the uh, politics uh, the from the um, now we have seen a large you know, large organization for um, in defense of human rights, which promotes human rights, which are speaking out for Julian Assange, like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and virtually all the, the press freedom and human rights organizations are speaking out for Julian Assange. But it took 13 years. 13 years to the, to achieve this, you know, it's an unbelievable, incredible story. Had I not seen this story, had I not seen these facts with my eyes from the very beginning, I couldn't have believed that uh, this was real. I would have thought, well, maybe there is something I don't know, some secret aspects I don't know, maybe there something happened with, I don't know, but this is what really happened. A man exposed war crimes, a man, uh, journalists expose uh, serious human rights violations, torture, and he has never known freedom again. After 13 years, he's still there in a high security prison in London. You write that, every, as you were just pointing out, every major press freedom and human rights organization has come out in Assange's support, and the growing empathy from the public is palpable. But, as you point out, it has taken so very long, and the price he has paid is so very high, and he is still in prison. What does this reveal to you 
about the power of human rights groups and press freedom groups and their ability to protect the public from abuse, especially in the case of Assange, where everyone is fully aware of what is happening, and it is happening basically in public for all to see. If it's taken 10, 12, 13 years to raise attention to get the public to recognize the brutality and cruelty of the state in punishing someone who revealed the state's cruelty and brutality, how much power and influence do human rights and press freedoms groups really have in so-called democracies if it's taken this long just to raise attention when it comes to Julian Assange? Yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, as I said, for over a decade, Julian Assange had any empathy from the public, from the major human rights organization, press freedom organizations, um, seriously undermined. Because uh, if you read, for example, the the book by uh, UN Special Rapporteur Nitz Medzer, you can understand that even a sophisticated uh, human rights investigator like Nitz Medzer was basically you know, influenced by this demonization campaign. And when he received the first request to intervene in, the, in this case, he just didn't want to hear about uh, this case. He thought, uh, well, he's a rapist, he's a kind, he's a hacker, he's a narcissist, why I should care about him? I, I don't want to be manipulated by such um, sinister figure. So even a sophisticated human rights investigator like the UN Special Rapporteur on Turtle was influenced by this demonization campaign. And this is why it took so many years, so many years over a, a decade to reach a consensus that what Julian Assange has experienced in the last 13 years is a brutal persecution. Now, after 10 years, 15 years, we we have seen this uh, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, uh, the the uh, International Federation of Journalists, and so on, uh, reacting to this and speaking out. But it took so long, precisely because of this demonization campaign. You write that it is not just governments, armies, and secret services that hate them and see them as enemies, that is, WikiLeaks, they are equally feared by powerful economic financial institutions, often in league with diplomats and intelligence agencies, as the most profitable financial operations thrive in secrecy. Is the biggest, most important revelation by WikiLeaks that relationship between governments, armies, secret services, economic financial institutions in league with diplomats and intelligence agencies to allow the most profitable within the military industrial complex to operate in secret and without any public oversight? Is the most important revelation in WikiLeaks, by WikiLeaks, that relationship globally? And has the press made that connection? Have they reported on that relationship? Well, actually, I think it is a well-known uh, fact. It's a, it's a matter of fact, which is well-known. What WikiLeaks provided is some important example, like, for example, when in Haiti, the local uh, uh, the local um, textile com- um, textile companies uh, working for the major um, 
uh, garment factories for the major uh, garment uh, brands uh, were basically were opposing the minimum salaries for the very poor workers in Haiti and, uh, and the US diplomacy was supporting them was supporting this uh, opposition to the to raising the minimum to establishing a minimum salary and the exploitation was uh, horrible so that cable is very very interesting to re to document the brutality of US capitalism supported by the most powerful diplomacy in the world, the U.S. diplomacy. Other important revelations, for example, were the the um, international the international trade agreements. Like I remember very well, TISA. Uh, this uh, international trade agreement was so secret that basically the uh, European parliamentarian were not allowed to read the text of these agreements. So when we got access to this uh, documentation, uh, we were in very serious difficulties in talking about this because uh, the parliament not even the parliamentarian knew the text of this of the draft of of these agreements so it was so secret it was so you know such a well guarded secret that not even the the parliaments and the parliamentarians had access to it and once again you realize the importance of how secrecy shield any chance of transparency when it comes to uh, economics, uh, when it comes to uh, the military industrial complex. That's why I call my book Secret Power. You could call it, uh, I mean, secret power is not a conspiracy theory. It's not, uh, I absolutely avoided to mention the deep state, which has become a kind of conspiracy where you can put all sorts of entities and so on. Um, it has been completely hijacked by the far right uh, conspiracy theorists. And uh, I use secret power basically to uh, to uh, to refer to the military industrial complex which is a, which is not a conspiratorial entity and uh, i stress how secrecy is abuse and uh, this military industrial complex uses secrecy not to protect the the security of citizens but rather to protect state criminality at the highest level and to um, avoid that the institution, the officials involved in these uh, serious state criminalities uh, get accountable to the public and get, you know, get uh, basically were put under trial, get uh, uh, final sentence, uh, get convicted. This secrecy is uh, highly abused. If you look at the WikiLeaks revelations, all these revelations are not about uh, military secrets uh, for uh, protecting the citizens, uh, protecting citizens from you know uh, terrorist attacks and so on. These are about state crimes. So these are about the CIA renditions. These are about the. the extrajudicial killings by drones. So the secrecy is abused 
to protect state criminals, not to protect the citizens, citizens from uh, attacks from terrorists and so on. Uh, just two more questions for you, Stefania. I know you're limited on time. You write that secret power does not want to destroy Julian Assange alone. It wants to destroy him, the WikiLeaks journalist, and ultimately to kill a revolution. There is no freedom of the press if journalists are not free to uncover and report state criminality without ending up dead or imprisoned for life. Under authoritarian regimes, it is not possible to do so without facing severe consequences. But in a truly non-authoritarian society, this must be permitted. So to what degree does WikiLeaks reveal that Western nations are not democracies, that their governments are indeed authoritarian? And is that why WikiLeaks is so feared and punished by governments around the world? Because they take the mask off of democracy, uh, of, of, of the democracy that you know people think are democracies, and actually reveal authoritarian states. Is the biggest threat to that revealing it is the biggest threat to you know the powers that be revealing the brutality of u.s capitalism yeah i mean it's a matter of fact that they uh revealed the the brutality of this power and uh, they revealed that you can have the best prosecutors like the italian prosecutors who nailed the cia agents uh, responsible for the extraordinary rendition of abu omar a milan cleric who was kidnapped in milan in the in the middle of the day and he was brutally tortured in egypt and our prosecutors were fantastic they were uh, tremendously uh, efficient and they were able to identify all CIA um, rendition teams or um, all the CIA agents of the rendition team, they were able to charge them. They were able to put them on trial in absentia because these guys had left Italy, of course, and they got final sentences. However, none of these people, none of these CIA agents went uh, to prison, they were they had free SDR, and of course we could have imagined that uh, the U.S. authorities had intervened on Italian politics to grant them impunity. But without WikiLeaks, we could have never have obtained the evidence. Maybe in forty years time, fifty years time when no one cares anymore, of course, because it's so far away and you know, it's so, you know, it's so old knowledge that you don't care. So the, the, the importance of WikiLeaks was to expose this, to provide evidence that even in the best situation where you have an efficient judiciary, when you have very independent prosecutor, very independent judges, and uh, the and justice works, and you have a committed uh, prosecutors and judge uh, uh, convicting these uh, state criminals, but you still get nowhere because uh, these people are above the law, and they they are not accountable to anyone. So. I'm convinced that the secret power is terrified. It's terrified because uh, the the wiki, Julian Assange WikiLeaks exposed all this. It's in, in plain sight. No one can deny that this is happening not in Russia or China or North Korea or, or Iran. This is happening in our democracies. And uh, so they, they provide evidence of this ugly face, the face which is so ugly that we don't want to see it. We don't want to 
to admit it. We want to live in the in the um, you know in the illusion that uh, we are different we are much better which of course we are different we are we are better for <laughs> for some aspects and, uh, and of course we have to admit that in a in an authoritarian society wikileaks couldn't have published these documents at all they would have been killed by by you know by killers uh, very very likely they the documents wouldn't be online and yet after 13 years they are online so in a sense we are better definitely but in another sense uh, these people are completely above the law they are completely uh, you know untouchable they are untouchable that's uh, that's uh, it's a matter of fact and they are criminals absolutely criminals so there is no other words for uh, for calling someone who goes around uh, kidnapping torturing killing extrajudicially uh, people and uh, not uh, being accountable to anyone you know and as you point out, this is trying to reveal the iron fist with uh, in, inside of the velvet glove. We have been speaking with, with investigative journalist for the Daily Il Fato Quotidiano, uh, Stefania Marizzi, who is author of Secret Power, WikiLeaks and Its Enemies. One last question for you, Stefania. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is called The Question from Hell, because it's the question you we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. You write, I want to live in a society where secret power is accountable to the law and the public for its atrocities. And this leads into your most recent response. But wouldn't secret power simply just change the law to allow for atrocities? Considering secret power has influence over the law, how much can we depend on the law to bring justice to people like Julian Assange and those at WikiLeaks who strive to reveal state secrets of crimes and corruption? Can the law protect us from the government the military-industrial complex, the military-intelligence complex, and powerful economic interests. On the on the one end, I would say yes, because as I said, the Italian prosecutors were able to nail the CIA agents. They were able to put them on trial, to charge them, to put them on trial, and to uh, to convict them. So on the one end, the law is, <laughs> is still protecting us. On the other end, this power is so, you know, is so uh, unaccountable, so above the law, that he can always find ways to uh, to corrupt justice, to corrupt the politicians, to, and so we are in troubles absolutely, and that's why I think the solution to the Julian Assange case uh, is will not come from the law, will not come from the British courts, who which basically have uh, the, uh, the <laughs> are part of the problems because for the last thirteen years. Whatever it has been done against Julian Assange has been done legally. I mean, it was the the Swedish case has been conducted legally. The the charges, uh, um, the espionage act charges has have been uh, uh, have been filed legally, and they go through a legal process. The extradition case goes through a legal process. But uh, you know, the the court, the the justice have been perverted and I don't have any you know any uh, confidence that he can win the case um, legally 
maybe at the European Court of Human Rights. But then once he has, a, even if he has a good sentence, so he's a, a sentence in his favor, and I'm quite optimistic about the European Court of Human Rights because we have records of the human, uh, human the European Court of Human Rights uh, ruling against intelligence agencies, uh, uh, against the CIA and so on. So even if he wins at the European Court of Human Rights, uh, it remains to be seen what the, Euro the British politicians, the British government will do after the European Court of Human Rights ruling. So I don't have confidence about a legal solution to this case, but I still have confidence in the public pressure on the UK and US authorities. That's why I take every opportunity to talk to the UK media and US media about this case, because unless people wake up, unless people oppose these um, uh, you know, this uh, monstrous injustice, as Ken Loach called it in, my, in, the, in his foreword to my book, unless the people act, uh, he won't win. He will be dead. I mean, the, the moment, I'm sure, the moment he leaves the European soil, the moment he leaves uh, London, he's gone. Julian Assange is gone. I have, I'm sure the moment he gets extradited to the US, he's dead, mentally, uh, politically, professionally, he's dead. On that incredibly sad note, Stefania, I cannot thank you enough for returning to our show. It is always a pleasure speaking with you. I promise it won't be six years until our next conversation. I'll be contacting you in the very near future so we can continue this uh, discussion that is not happening, unfortunately, here in the United States. Thank you so much, and thank you for all of your work. I truly, truly appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you to you. And I'm very happy to talk to you whenever you you want to do it. All right. Thank you very much, Stefani. Enjoy the rest of your week. Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime, as we were just hearing from Stefania. And I just realized I didn't turn off the heat before today's show, as I can hear it in the background. If what you just heard from Stefania Marizzi on the brutality and cruelty aimed at Julian Assange for revealing the brutality and cruelty by the government, if that was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding or made you feel like you actually learned something or to realize that, yes, good Lord, this really is hell. Show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time this week. And is or it's supposed to always be at, uh, on Thursdays, but sometimes it's on Friday. And it's podcast shortly after patreon.com slash this is hell. Or you can show your support for completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support. Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from Hal is, what have you repeatedly failed to do but keep trying to achieve anyway? Do you have an answer to this week's question from Hal? Is there something that you com are constantly trying to do but fail and you keep doing it anyway? I don't know. I'll, let's, I, I, I can't think of anything right now. I guess I just give up. But <laughs> I was going to say the same thing with me. <laughs> I, I'm just not that dedicated of a person. If I fail at it several times, I'm like, hey, guess what? I'm going to fail at this next time, too. So I'm going to skip doing this. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'll let you know if I think of right, something. Right. But uh, let's send me see. an email. I'll share it on the air. Uh, um, let's see. Figmund Newton. Yes. So is that what? What are they trying to? Uh, what they've repeatedly failed to do, but keep trying to achieve anyways, is grow up. <laughs> yes. All right. That I'll buy. Uh, and Nick E says. Watch all episodes of one of the many new highly recommended shows. <laughs> all right. Enjoy that. I keep trying to do that and always fail at it. Six, I successfully fail at it following any of those new shows. There's some something right before new that, like, I can't read it. I don't, I don't know. You'd have to go on Facebook and look. The typing, it's too small. You know, I don't know. It doesn't look like normal words. So if we're missing something in that, it's because I can't Mickey. read it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well. Anyway. Um. The only other ones are on Twitter. Okay. So shall I go sure. over there? Let's see. We have a couple in the dark alley that is Twitter. Uh, yes, we do have a couple here on Twitter. What have you repeatedly failed to do, but keep trying to achieve it anyway? Ahmed S says. Get Chuck's attention. <laughs> I'm mad. You actually won the question from hell, like, back in November, but you never got back in touch with us to tell us the, which uh, gift you wanted. So I will uh, get get in contact with you and make sure that you know. Okay. So uh, so I guess you have gotten Chuck's attention. <laughs> you did. You, you did, haven't yes. gotten Ahmad's attention. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it's on him, not me. <laughs> Olive J says, what are they... Uh, repeatedly fail to do but keep trying to achieve anyway find the most effective form of protest one that doesn't annoy my philosophical kin yet pushes left centrists and makes fascists poop their pants <laughs> all right making fascists poop their pants is what <laughs> olive is working on i'm all for that as well <laughs> <laughs> Any more? No, that was the last one. So we will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell later this week. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag they want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. During this week's moment, Jeff influences the influencers. And wow, do I hate influencers. And now, after our conversation on Monday, I even hate influencers more as we learn that so many people learned about cryptocurrency through podcasts where podcasters were being paid for by groups like FTX. Influencers are not influencers. They are paid advertisers, and we have to stop using the word influencers. They are paid advertisers. They are commercials. If you're watching an influencer, you are watching an, an ad. You are watching infotainment. You are watching a paid-for ad. Do you, when you unfortunately are watching TV, do you stop on the paid-for ads and watch those for a half an hour? Hell no. Yet people will do it on podcasts, despite them not even knowing that this person's being paid by whoever is the product that they're promoting. God, I hate influencers. I even hate the word. We will have the rest of your answers to the question from hell later this week. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, 
nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, this week in Rotten History, on January 11th, 1943, 80 years ago this week, in New York City, the Italian-American newspaper editor and labor organizer, Carlo Tresca was murdered in an apparent mafia-style execution. For those of you who are unaware, a mafia-style execution is when the victim is executed by a gunshot wound, usually to the head, at very in the back of the head, at very close range when the victim is restrained and has no chances of escape. So can everyone stop using the term mafia casually when mafia-style includes executing ki- executing. Killing people in the the most cowardly of ways, tying them up, making it so they can't run away, and then shooting them in the back of the head. Good Lord, stop using the word mafia as something that's cool. Born in Italy, Tresca had immigrated to the United States in 1904 after getting in trouble with Italian authorities for running a socialist newspaper and working with the National Railroad Workers Union. Look, here's the reason why I'm so anti-mafia. In my family, the stories of the mafia are about executing people and then throwing their dead bodies out on your front lawn. And that's not a story. That's something that actually happened to my, a friend of my father's. My dad was a little kid. He saw a guy get executed mafia-style and then thrown out onto his friend's front lawn. That's not something cool. In the U.S., Tresca soon came to identify as an anarchist and joined the internet industrial Workers of the World, also known as the Wobblies. In his capacity as a union activist and editor, Tresca spent time in jail for leading pickets and for publishing an advertisement for a book on birth control. Later, he became a prominent and outspoken critic of both Italian fascism and Soviet Stalinism. So Tresca was a socialist newspaper editor, a railway worker activist, an anarchist, a wobbly, a promoter of birth control, and a critic of both Mussolini and Stalin. In other words, this guy had lots of enemies. Tresca was shot to death on New York's Fifth Avenue by a gunman who immediately got away in a black sedan and was never found. To this day, the crime remains unsolved. Historians disagree as to whether the hit was ordered by Soviet agents or by the Genovese crime family who had ties to Benito Mussolini. So let's think about this for a second. Either way, it sounds like it was done by the mob, and it sounds like it was just as believable that Mussolini would have contacts with the mafia to commit assassinations as it was for Stalin to call up the mafia for a hit, which is pretty scary when you think about two leaders of nations who were at the time being engaged in World War II having the mafia on speed dial, and either of them could have found the time to take a break Somehow, from World War freaking two to call their friends in the mob and have some critic of theirs all the way over in the United States executed. Jeez, the prevalence of the mob back then was insane. And who knows to what extent they have any power anymore because they say that the mafia no longer exists. Now, that's rotten history, especially for Carlo Tresca. And this is Hell. Lindsay, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell.
That's a good question. <laughs> That's a great question. I said it yesterday, but I forgot to pull the email up today, and now there are lots of emails in my box, and I'm trying to pick the right one. Uh, okay, so we will have the return of journalist Christopher Ketchum, who wrote co-wrote the Intercept piece, The Shutdown of Luxury Emissions Should Be at the Center of Climate Revolt. And Christopher has uh, spoken with us on several occasions in the past about the environment. I believe he talked to us about the Colorado River in the past. I can't remember all the topics we discussed with him. But you can find all of our interviews with Christopher at thisishell.com when you search on his last name, Ketchum, K-E-T-C-H-A-M. And of course, we will have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff influences the influencers I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. I hate saying live-streaming host. It always sounds like I have some sort of urinary tract infection. Thanks to Lindsay Gorey for producing Live from the United States, where capitalism is the virus. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>